There's no one that's female. I mean, why in the hell would I think that I can be successful? Women are not making it to the top of any profession. So it's a very male-dominated environment. We do exist in this society where women in entertainment are discarded. There are women over 40 making pop music, but you won't hear them on commercial radio. And this is why conversation between women and music has never been more important. Hi, and welcome to Control, the podcast where we speak to incredibly inspiring women working in the music and creative industries, in control of their music and in control of their careers. I'm Chelsea Wilson, your host, and in this episode, I'm speaking to executive producer of Sounds Australia and board director of Support Act, Millie Milgate. A graduate of Harvard Business School, Millie has over 20 years' experience in the music sector, working across artist management, programming and export events. She's held executive positions with both Music New South Wales and the Association of Artist Managers and since 2009 has represented the Australian music industry internationally as executive producer of Sounds Australia. In this conversation, we talk about export events during the COVID-19 pandemic, what festival directors are really looking for, her experience as a venue booker, her time as a Eurovision judge, and much more. This is Millie Milgate in Control. Millie Milgate, welcome to the Control Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat with me. Thanks for having me, Chelsea. Good to see you. Good to see you too. It's been a while since I saw you last in Scotland. Feels like a million years ago. Right. But what a great event that was. That was best practice, I think, in terms of a showcase event. Like it was such a a really well curated and focused. I've taken a lot of cues and ideas and still hoping to try and implement some of them in Australia, to be honest. Yes, it was a really great example of a showcase. So big shout out to Showcase Scotland and The Visit. Um, But I wanted to chat to you today about a number of things, but kicking off as Mm -hmm. Executive Director for Sounds Australia, you've overseen the marketing, showcasing and networking activity for Australian artists in over 56 cities across 20 countries since 2009, which is incredible. Can you talk us through developing the export strategy for Australia? How do you go about choosing what international markets to focus on? Absolutely. I mean, gosh, It's weird when you say it like that, particularly given we haven't been on a plane for for two years, but it's constantly evolved. I think when I was first brought into the role and when the role was created, it it was all born out of a need. And just going way back in terms of why, um, what was happening was the Australia Council for the Arts at the time were getting artists applying to them for touring grants um, for International Pathways And what they were starting to see was more often than not the opportunity that people were wanting to go to was one of these showcasing events. So predominantly South by Southwest or The Great Escape in the UK. So instead of, you know, I think the criteria was you had to, you know, do three shows minimum, one of them would be South by and then they'd tack on a couple of other shows. So it was pretty, you know, very much trying to just get to that event. So I guess there were people within council that realised what is it about this event that people are going to and why should we be supporting the artists to go there? And more so the woman at the time that headed up um, market development kind of went, well, should we go and have a look at it? And so from there 
first kind of reconnaissance, they saw that the British had a really big presence on ground and the Canadians mm-hmm. and the Nordics and there was, it wasn't enough just to give the Acts some money to help with, you know, travel and accommodation expenses. It was what happens when they're there. So it was very much recognising there is this thing that's starting to happen, which are music export offices that are providing on-the-ground assistance. And so they brought together a whole lot of different people within the Australian music industry. So there were some managers that had exported quite a bit with their acts. There were other trade industry organisations. There was Austrade at the time. And through that kind of working group came up with this concept of A Sounds Australia um, and APRA AMCOS very much saw that that was something that their membership would would benefit from and mm. at the time more, you know, APRA riders were spending time internationally. So what could this look like? And so the partnership was developed between the Australia Council and APRA and the position was housed within APRA AMCOS. So it was really about coming out and looking at, well, what could we do to support this activity? And so... Uh, if you get invited to any one of these events, you generally get an offer of one showcase. Mm. It's a hell of a long way to go. <laughs> For 30 minutes or 45 minutes to right? play. Yeah, and the idea is this is your, you know, it's like a wine expo or a food expo. You know, you, you, you're showing your wares and the best way for artists to do that is through live performance. So you want to be playing more than once. So the very immediate thing something like Sounds Australia could do would be to, to set up an, an, an ability for an artist to be seen again and that was us producing additional showcases. So for the last 10 years that's been the Aussie Barbecue Showcase um, and then we've got variations on that theme. So, we you know, we've done Sound Gallery, we've done two for the showcase, we've done, you know, um, I think at one stage we had an event called Dryzer Bone, like, you know, all different ways of putting... Australians front and centre and giving them an extra ability to be seen. Um, And then it was also about, well, okay, yes, you might have a play, but what do you need from those events? You need to have the capacity to talk to people, to get in front of people. And so we started to introduce networking. And so that could take the place of a luncheon, like a quite formal sit-down meal where there was no bands happening at that time it was very much you know we're going to try and sit you next to a promoter we're going to try and set you next to someone that does music supervision or if you're looking for a label we might happen to have sat you in front of people from a record label so it was kind of almost like curating a wedding you know (laughs) look at who we were putting um there and I think what worked well was rather than an artist or an artist manager trying to get people to come and meet with them we could do that collectively So we could hit up these agents and say, hey, come and meet a whole lot of Australian managers and artists. And so I think we've been able to really create some meaningful and quality networking events that are now pretty much cemented into people's calendar that they know that at South By on the Wednesday at 12 o'clock, you know, they're probably going to get an invite to our luncheon. And that sort of has been repeated around the world Um, We do things like Country Connections where all the equivalents to Sounds Australia, so the Canadians, the Brits, that we all bring our delegations together and they do some, you know, five-minute speed meetings or collectively, again, we'll bring a whole lot of agents in to meet with them. So it's sort of about, you know, just where possible while you're at that event, what additional things can we put into place where you are going to have a very real chance of getting in front of the people you need to. So that's really been the model 
through throughout the years. And I think a lot of that comes down to the efficiencies and the economies of scale around showcase events. You know, there's certainly schools of thought where, you know, certain people will path their way going, well, I don't want to get involved with the traffic. You know, everyone's going to South by, so I want to be the person that doesn't do that and goes to LA and New York and has my own meetings. And that's absolutely valid. And if you've got the connections and networks, why not? But I think certainly for those for the first time, there's a lot to be gained from just being part of a more kind of, you know, cohesive and collective kind of networking. It, it will get you in front of people that you on your own wouldn't have had those networks. Um, and then that's also built. And I, I think one of the things, you know, I really truly didn't expect and has been probably one of the most rewarding is seeing the camaraderie. Like there's this real equaling of the playing field when you're exporting. It doesn't matter if you're from Secret Sounds or Laneway or you're that first-time manager, um, you're all in it together. You know, you're these Australians that are there, you're all being given the same platform and opportunity and there's a lot of, hey, have you met this person? I'll introduce you. And I think that that generosity of spirit and that, you know, ability to kind of work together once they're outside of Australia is something that I, I just don't think I ever thought I'd see so tangible. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of weaved away there. I don't know. <laughs> no, I love that. It's like the um, the Australian Olympic team or something 100%. like that. You know, you're yeah. all competitors yeah. here in Australia, but when you're overseas, yes. you know what? You're yes. Team Australia, and, it, and you're all supporting each other. That's the best analogy. And it's you know, you're all in different races. You know, you're a butterfly, or I'm a backstroker, but you're still standing on the side. It is hundred percent how it is. And you know, short of putting them all in a uniform. I would never. <laughs> Maybe we should um, do that. It definitely, I, I think having that united presence has just kind of inherently given them this, you know, this real sense of we're in it together, um, which has been great. And I, I know, 100% know it's opened even more doors than we ever could. You know, it's just that practice of really generous, being generous with your networks, being generous with the people that you know that could benefit other people and letting everyone walk through those doors, I think is something real testament to those that are practising in the industry side and certainly the artists become the beneficiaries of that behaviour. So for independent artists or managers that maybe haven't gone to an international showcase event before, how do you recommend they choose which one they target? Should they be looking at their Spotify yeah, plays sure. and what their audiences are like in other territories first or yeah and I think it depends also what genre like we're really finding so when when Sounds Australia was created it was very much you know it was just me it was you know a pretty small operation and we were targeting the big ones so South by Southwest Great Escape CMJ at the time what I discovered pretty soon into that you know world was there are a lot of genre events. So we're talking Americana Fest, Folk Alliance International, Jazz Ahead, Classical Next, Amsterdam Dance Event, and all of those very much are great, great for artists operating in those scenes. You know, you, you don't have to go to a big event and try and find your people. These are your people. You know, there's obviously factions within it, but ultimately, um, I really feel like those genre events had the uh, other addition of having a community. You know, there's far more artist-to-artist connection. There's a lot more collaborative kind of, you know, from a songwriting perspective that comes out of it. But they're definitely 
could be the right event for certain artists. They're definitely smaller in size. As a first time, if you're looking, they're probably a really good starting point if you fall into one of those those genres. I also am a big believer in what have artists done before you? So artists that, you know, are kind of your aspirational artists or artists that you'd love to do a support with, like think about the acts that, you know, if they came to town, who would I love to support? And I'm talking about other Australian acts. What have they done? You know, where did Courtney Barnett showcase? How did, you know, the middle kids get out there and do it for the first time? What was Gang of Youth's trajectory? So I think just starting to look at, you know, and that information for us, we, we do have who's gone to events all on our archives, on our sites. Seeing what others have done and how that's worked for them, I think is a really good start. You know, obviously now it's changed. It's changed since we started. I mean, you know, when I was coming through and going back to my, you know, management days and, you know, booking venues before then, um, you know, you, you would be touring Australia over and over and over again. You'd be building this audience. You'd be, you know, putting savings away from record sales. Remember when people used to buy records and, you know, you'd really have to build Australia. That's totally different. You know, you no longer build Australia as a market and then look to alternatives. And and often for Australian acts, they were signed to record deals where they were signed for the world. They then had to find mm. a champion in Universal, in that territory that was prepared to even think about trying to work with them in that market. So it was a totally different approach to export. Now, the minute you're releasing something on Spotify, you're global. You know, you can start to look at your analytics. You can look at chart metric. You can look at, you know, how many people in Patagonia or in, you know, Chile or, you know, wherever are, are connecting with you. So I guess in, in some ways it's amazing to just get under the hood and see where your fans and listeners are coming from, which really will help you target. You know, I, I've been with managers where they've just found, you know, and this for, for whatever reason, you know, huge audience in Germany. Why? How? You know, they've eventually chased it back but it's like it actually gives you a bit of targeting then if you are about to embark on a live kind of um schedule but I think what that also means is it's really expensive to try and manage multiple markets at the same time you know and you don't necessarily have the the home base where you can earn the same amount to keep refueling so I feel like as much as it's opened it up and it's easier and, you know, access to get your music out there has become more democratised and all of that's great, if you're trying to then build international careers in every market simultaneously, that's a lot. It's a really big thing to do. So I think you do need to be really clever about it and sensible about it and at the same time keep replenishing your home audience. You know, and, and I guess if COVID's done anything, you know, you need to look at other ways if you physically can't get to a market. You know, unfortunately, that whole live revenue just fell off a cliff. So how did I mm-hmm. to do things? So I, I think it's going to change the whole game. You know, we, we talk amongst our team often in that we know what we're doing. We know what we're trying to achieve on behalf of Australian artists and industry. We know what our objectives are. So we definitely know the what. We know the why. What we no longer know is the how. And I'm really honest about that. Like we used to know 
how showcase conferences worked. We used to know that if you went to this event and there were people in that room, we, we, we knew we could get people in front of you. We didn't necessarily know that they would like you. We didn't necessarily know that they would sign you, but we knew they'd be there. What we don't know right now is how the industry are going to use global showcase conference events. You know, over the last two years, artists have still been signed. They've been discovered on TikTok. They might have had something viral on Twitter. You know, these things have still kept going. So mm. will the record labels still send the same amount of people to these events? Will the same program as a folk festivals go to Folk Alliance? You know, all of those questions remain completely uncertain. You know, we feel like people's travel budgets, people's um, risk and want to travel will be different. You know, people's appetite for going to, you know, I think you mentioned, Chelsea, you know, before you, you, you were away five trips that year. Are people going to do that any longer? I mean, the whole COVID compliance, the whole testing, the whole, it's exhausting. You know, it's, it's you know, fluctuations in price, inflation. Like I'm trying to, I mean, I'm not wanting to paint a negative view, but I feel. No, but it's just realistic, isn't realistic it? Realistic that there's going to be a lot of changes. I think, you know, people are going to look at their carbon footprint in terms of sustainability around they're exporting. So there's a whole lot of things that we're about to embark on that I think we'll need to, as a team, are going to be sort of going, well, what what does it all look like? And in doing so, we want to head back out to these events this year in 2022. And we, you know, if they're going ahead and now the borders are down, we can go. Um, but we're going very much with a, does this make sense anymore? And, you know, we used to go to an event and we'd look at who are, who's, who's here? Who are the kind of delegates that we're getting people in front of? What are other countries doing? Is it cost effective? You know, we, we have to invest in an event to present the things we do. You know, you can't just rock up and put a showcase on. Like there's, you know, a, a contract exchange to do that on behalf of the Australian artists. We need to know that the decisions we're making in terms of the right events still work for our artists. So, yeah, there's a lot of unknown, there's a lot of uncertainty, but, you know, it's it's also exciting. There could be other things that work even better. You know, I think some of the things we, we needed to do during this time um, in terms of putting on virtual events and online presence, you know, I, I feel like there's tools that we've, you know, really been able to hone into in that world that could be used before an event. So we could put on some virtual, you know, let's get to know a lot of people before you turn up to a market. You know, that could be another sort of thing that strengthens that engagement. You know, I'm really mindful that there's certain artists that will never be able to tour, you know, whether that's accessibility, whether it's cost prohibitive, but still equally should be and could be exporting. So we might be able to do more virtual things for those artists or mm. regional artists. So it's all a little bit of, there's a huge question mark as to where all of this will land and maybe it'll never land maybe it's just constantly reassessing and re-evaluating um but i think that's what we believe we're in for um just just to see what what and how people use these events and will it be like they used to i think ultimately humans still love music and it's such a huge part of the human experience and so we will get through this time but even during this time you can see people still bought records people 
still participated in live music by streaming gigs. So there's still audiences all around the world that are interested in music and interested in Australian music. Oh, no question. Yeah. Yeah. It's about how do we find those pathways to reach those audiences in this kind of new environment. I definitely agree with you on before heading to an international showcase to do research. I attended Jazz Ahead a couple of years ago now and it was huge and it's kind of overwhelming being in this massive exhibition space, speaking English, and you're just walking from stand to stand, effectively cold calling people. And it seems like everybody there seems to already know each other. So it's it's also a long-term investment, right? You might go every single year and then you start Absolutely. seeing the same people every year and and the relationship builds. But how can we try and build those kind of relationships now? What was your thoughts on some of the digital iterations of showcase events over the last couple of years? Yeah, and I will say, I mean, you're going to Jazz Ahead. I mean, we do have a little bit of a mantra of go before you show, and I feel like there's a lot in that, you know, whether it's uh, as an industry professional or even a self-managed artist, before you bring your four-piece band, you just go. You know, go and have a look, get amongst it so that when you do go to showcase, you know, oh, well, that's the right venue I should try and be playing or I know that these other people are putting on additional showcase parties that I want to get in on. So it's really good that you did that and I think there's a lot um, to be to, to be achieved by going first. Um, so in terms of digital, I feel like there were certainly music conferences that did that really well others it was just a last minute thing that they had to do because their virtual event got shut down you know within five weeks of the show um but I think what we found was you know nothing's ever going to replace that in life experience you know I I feel like what we started to see was you know you just had no idea who was there at least in real life you could see delegates with their badges you knew where they were from you know this was like you know, and the, the conference is going to tell you there were thousands of people there. It's like, were there? Um, you know, and if they were there, were they even at your showcase? You know, there were certain events we were involved with where there were a number of virtual showcases up against each other. And then even if they were in your room, were they actually watching? Or were they feeding the dog and watering some plants? You know, so all of that became quite tricky. <laughs> but I've got to say, again, coming back to those genre events, they were the most potent. And I think it was that sense of community. And if you could start to get people in the chat and get our artists in the chat, that's where the connections were starting to happen. Um, and I guess we use that experience to create what's called Inside Sounds, which is a portal we've developed at the back end of our website so that we've now been hosting events within this portal. So the Australian artists, the Australian industry, the international industry all get a profile and they can connect in there. We've held, we held a conference for the um, Australian Country Music Association and the Canadian Country Music Association. We were, you know, getting a whole lot of panel sessions that happened at international events and showing them in our time zone and people could do it in there and we invited those speakers that had spoken at an event somewhere overseas to join the, the chat and stay around for a bit of an after, you know, conversation. So... I guess there's definitely been virtual activity that has worked. Um, I think you might know that we used to do one-on-one meetings at Big Sound and at WAM for all the internationals that came in. We did both of those virtually and some really great connections happened. 
And in fact, there were a couple of speakers, some of the international speakers said, this was actually better than Big Sound because I wasn't distracted. You know, I got put into the breakout room and you can hmm. one-on-one chat like we are rather than all the people behind coming to try and drag you away. So, you know, there were some, some benefits there. Um, I think out of everything that we did virtually, the most rewarding has been creating a project called Global Music Match. And that was very much recognising, okay, these acts aren't going to tour, but how could we still connect people? And so we've wor- we worked with 16 different countries and there were, you know, I think the first session there were 120-odd acts and the next one we wow. did it a little bit. And each of the acts were put into teams of five and there was, you know, an Australian act and five others. And then over the course of the coming weeks, each artist got a feature week in which everyone else introduced them to their fan bases. So it was kind of using a little bit of the principle of, you know, you, you've got a main act and you've got the support and the main act's introducing that support to their audience. It was sort of similar in a way here. So, you know, one week it would be the Taiwanese Act would get introduced to five new markets at the same time. And how they got introduced could be, you know, it could be a, a, com- a conversation, it could be a collaboration. We had artists covering each other's songs. We had artists creating new songs together. Um, and through the whole process, they were learning how to video edit. They were learning what whitelisting meant. They were learning, you know, how to make sure that their copyrights were fight late. So there was a lot of the educational side of using your social media and all your available ways of connecting with your audience, but doing it with other acts. And so the things that came out of that were just this idea that every artist, no matter where they were in the world, was going through this same thing. Like, you know, the, the pandemic left no country untouched. And so for these artists to be able to share their experiences with people all around the world, but then have this global connector of music and write songs together and share information and learn together. Um, again, like there, there was that camaraderie and that, you know, that they're all now still talking. You know, there's Glenn, Glennie, who I work with, is literally on maybe 35 different WhatsApp groups from all these teams uh, after the two years and they're still talking and they're still, you know, now they're at the stage where, well, now we're touring, can I come and stay on your couch? And, you know, <laughs> during it, there was there was a global music match um, crash for all the working mothers, the, the artist mothers that could get together and share their experience. So, you know, things like that have been amazing to be part of and to really, you know, see that it, it, it music's so universal. Um, but, yeah, just, just even from, you know, for us and in terms of what does that mean for new audiences, they still found some new audiences. They've certainly now got a network that they connect, can connect with when they go. That's incredible and what a wonderful initiative and congratulations. I'd love to see more of that and, you know, it'd be incredible for the next kind of post-COVID incarnation of international showcases to have those kind of songwriter Mm. hubs on ground because those conference environments are such an exchange of ideas and networking and meet and greets and opportunities to book existing work, but it would be incredible to see also as happening in conjunction to that Mm. to get all the artists together to keep writing together because those international collaborations are so unique for touring as well and I think a lot of international programmers are looking for unique projects like that so speaking of international festivals a lot of artists and 
managers and booking agents will head over to those international conferences because they're hoping to book international festival dates for their artists. Mm -hmm. What do you think festival programmers are looking for in terms of Australian artists and how do we go about trying to get those kind of gigs? Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, right now we're sort of trying to work out where the booking schedule might self-correct to how it was so you used to know that there were certain times where the bookers were looking you know they'd done their headliners they'd done most of their main kind of billing but there were always going to be those emerging artist spots and so the timing of certain festivals worked really well with the summer the northern hemisphere summer so right now though you've got programmers that are trying to deal with two years worth of backlog Mm -hmm. all these acts that they had booked for 2020 shows are they automatically going to get on that stage in 2022 maybe maybe not and there's different different festivals are taking different approaches some of them and this is both commercial festivals and the showcase conference model some of them are going you know what we're just starting from scratch we still want the emerging acts so that could be an act that didn't even exist you know two years ago You've got others that are very loyal to that initial programming and are trying to still find them a stage. You've also now got this situation where so many heritage and iconic and seminal acts are coming out of the woodwork. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the consumption and the streaming numbers and the sales, it's all catalogue. It's all this back catalogue. It's it's really hard in terms of new artists coming through because you've now got all these older acts that have decided, well, hang on, we just had a bit of a, a win and people are listening to our records again. Now we might go out. So the the I, I just think the traffic in terms of who's playing is everyone's trying to go out and mobilise at the same time. So I feel like in terms of what those festival programmers are doing, the world's almost their oyster in terms of choice. Mm. You know, there's not a lack of choice. You know, you've got every artist in the world hasn't toured live for two years and all the artists that thought they were done are now coming out again. And that's who they get to choose from. So I feel like, yes, there's the choice. A lot of it's going to come down to probably working with festivals or working with each other in a way they haven't needed to before. Like we're hearing horrendous stories of supply chains and production issues and hiring of stadiums. And, and why would you keep loading in and loading out if these venues are being used one after the other, maybe the production goes in and stays there. You know, you've got most company, you know, the, the staffing losses, mm-hmm. you know, staffing that, you know, people that have left the industry that may never come back are causing horrific price increases. You know, just even, this is probably more in a festival situation, but, you know, security companies, your, your luggers, your, your techs, you know, your highly trained guitar and lighting, like so many of them have left. So, again, whilst you might have this desire and need for all these artists to come out, the sheer reality of delivering those shows, there's there's a disconnect there. You know, when you've got an act like Adele that pulls out of a Vegas residency because of their production and COVID, like that that to me it's like, you know, all the money at the, in the world could, have be, could, could be thrown at fixing that problem. There's clearly some major sort of things that are going to take a little bit of time to correct. Um, so in terms of Australian artists looking, I think there's there's a couple of things in play. Um, one of the things we did 
uh, very, very early on in the pandemic was recognise that Australian artists were going to need help in a way we'd probably never done before. And we also knew that, you know, it didn't make sense for us to rush out and spend our existing budgets doing virtual everything. You know, we definitely mm. wanted to try and we wanted to keep Australians still present, but it was very much where could we save and hold a surplus, a budget surplus that could then be redirected. And so the government partners for Sounds Australia, so the federal government, the Australia Council for the Arts, along with APRA AMCOS, ARIA and the PPCA all agreed, and it's really terrific that they did this, that we could redirect our 2020 and 2021 surplus into a funding program. So we were able to do that. The minister topped it up a little bit. So we've been able to, we're, we're in the midst of judging round two, but that was about trying to get artists immediately back out on stages and trying to help with some of the additional costs COVID had brought to the forefront. So at the time for round one, it was quarantine you know, hotel quarantine, it was the cost of additional flight costs. You know, there were flights to LA for $16,000. Like it was absurdity. Um, you know, it was about, you know, in increased insurance premiums. Now, now there's no quarantine, but visa costs are insane. Trying to get your visas expedited is, is crazy. You know, COVID consumables. You know, he, there's a story, and this this just blows our mind. Like, there's an Australian artist looking at getting into a writing room with a really big writer in the US, and part of the conditions of that happening are that it's the Australian writer's expense to pay $400 a day US for a nurse to come in and administer rapid antigen tests. What? To everyone in that room. So there's this whole kind of category that we're now referring to COVID consumables, like your PCR tests aren't free everywhere. You know, if you're going state to state, you've got it like, so all these additional costs because of the environment. So the whole idea was to create this grant that those with established careers, those that already had their teams that just needed to get back out there, we could help get them away. What has become really apparent though is in addition to those acts, there's a whole lot of Australian acts, like you said, that haven't had a chance to break through yet. For the last two years, would have been the ones going to these events and getting their kickstart, have got ridiculous streaming numbers, but have never left the country. So we would love to see a dedicated export grants program exist that was for all levels, you know, that, that showed if you got an invite to a conference there, you could have a little bit of you, you know, got a jazz ahead show. But then it's that it's that middle area of return to market. You know, if you've already had a little bit of success and you need to go back, how do you get back in a timely manner? You know, if you've had to max out your credit cards and, you know, call on your parents and save and save and save to do that first event, and you've had success and everything you wanted came true. You've got a producer that wants to work with you. You've got the gun agent. You've got a support, an act that wants you on support. How do you do that? You know, it's not often that. The first trip's usually the easiest. It's the second and the third and the, you know. So I guess they're the sorts of things we're advocating for is more, more support in those areas. Um so when you come back to your question of, you know, when should people be going, they've just got to be really, really sure that they can afford it, that they can afford the risk if something happens to them, that they absolutely know what they're going into. 
And I feel like these next couple of years, unless you've really got some strong support and teams around you, it's going to be hard. You know, it is that that's the reality of it. I feel like if you can develop audiences more locally, you know, looking at Australia and regional remote audiences, trying to do as much as you can online and just build up before you're ready to go because it, it is going to be tough. Like international was hard already. It's going to be so much harder. So it's definitely not a no because I think the audiences are there. The appetite for Australians to be overseas is huge. Like we're in demand. There's definitely people that want Australian talent. The talent's not a problem. Talent's never been a problem in this country. You know, it's one of the easiest things we get to do. We know that, you know, when we put a group of Australians on stage, they'll knock it out, you know. It's just it's all the behind the scenes getting there that's that's the hard part. Can we go back in time a little and chat about your early career, starting off in programming, booking artists for shows at Macquarie Uni, Hopeton <laughs> Hotel, the Annandale Hotel. What do you think your biggest learnings were during your time as a band booker? Wow. That's really taken me back. <laughs> I thought we were just going back post-COVID, pre-COVID, but we're really going back. <laughs> um, look, I, I feel like some of the biggest learnings, okay, I feel like People like to talk in the industry, you know, like, oh, I'll never use that guy or never use her. She's a X, Y, and Z. And it's like, that might be the case, but I need to know that for myself. So I think if I'd listened to every person that said never work with Bob or never work with Janet, I I would have limited some really great relationships and opportunities because I think mm. every everything and and particularly if you're booking venues you, you you're dealing with all kinds of acts you know all kinds of levels all kinds of genres you just can't you can't treat everyone like someone else might have been treated if that makes sense so I, I found that not listening to that advice was really great because it's also how you know there might have been other reasons why that person it didn't work out you know so have your own experience. Don't necessarily, you know, be mindful. If someone says be careful of them and you trust that person, sure. But I, I genuinely think people are wanting to do the right thing and I feel like that was a pretty early lesson for me was just create your own relationships and see where that goes because I think that if I'd listened to everything and everyone said, I, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done things the way I did. So, yeah, I feel like that was one asking you know there was there were certain acts that you know you'd never think that they'd play the size room that I had like I was only working with pretty small rooms you know 250 300 at the Hoey and then up to to five at the Annandale but you know you start getting creative like getting bigger acts in over three nights you know so even things like that I think if you if you're in those positions like you can only ask you know people are happy if you're ask the question. <laughs> I found that too as a booker when I first started because I'm a musician that then started festival programming. I felt really I had to sort of overcome feeling uncomfortable or embarrassed about what I thought was not a huge sum of money I was offering. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I thought, "Oh, I feel awkward. I think they should get paid more, but this is the mm-hmm. only budget mm-hmm. that I have." And A friend of mine who's a fellow booker said to me, Chelsea, you have to just go and and ask the question. They won't be offended. They're still flattered you've asked them for a gig. 
And he said to me, how do you feel if somebody gives you an offer to perform and it's not a huge budget? And I just said, well, I I just say thanks for the offer. I can't do my full band for that fee, but I could do a duo gig perhaps and you just go back and forth. And he said, well, exactly. So you just go out there with the offer and yeah. see how you go. I think being as honest as you can. I mean, I think it's also it's also looking for other things like there's certain venues that build a reputation for having a sort of music. You know, it's it's all rock. Um, if there's the flexibility, starting to broaden the programming is always useful because the reality of those venues is that it's also a licensed publican and someone who owns the space. And as much as they probably are very, you know, happy if it's the right kind of act in there, they just want bar sales. They literally just want people in there to drink so that they can pay the rent. And so it's trying to get a very delicate balance of what's going to do that for your publican versus what's going to work for the industry that you love and the artists that you want to have perform there. So I think it was always a matter of, you know, there were certain acts, like I remember doing, you know, two-litre Dolby, El Moper, Jersey, like that kind of, you know, shoegazy, really, you know, that a lot of people were going to sit on the floor and drink water. Um, but they were great artists. They should have been in the room. And so it was a matter of convincing the public and that I was going to do this, but then I was going to bring in, you know, just a four on the floor, building rock, you know, dads in the afternoon, they will drink till they can't stand for them the next week. So, you know, I, I, I don't know that this is your answer, but I think it was always just sort of, you know, you, you're there for a commercial reason. It's someone's business. If you've been engaged as a booker, you have to keep, people coming in the door or they're not going to be able to keep that venue open but then you definitely want to be able to you know create a, a feeling that the people that come to the room it means something to them I definitely found over those years you had to trust your networks like there was no way I could listen to every single cassette this is going to age me it, you know cassette that was sent in or then cd like you know there were walls and walls <laughs> and walls and if all i did was listen to the music presented as a booker and i'm sure most bookers would say the same you'd never do anything else you actually couldn't have the time to book the room so you needed to have really key tastemakers and people you know whether they were other artists whether they were just other colleagues or you know trusting the agents you know, that, that would come to you and, and rely on that. You know, you couldn't do it all yourself. Like no book is doing all of that. They've got go-to people that they're calling on um, and finding out, you know, who's the, who's the next act? Who should we be looking at? You're just constantly asking those questions. I feel like, there's, you know, the booking thing, you know, really gave you a good, you know, understanding of the mechanics of the industry. You know, you'd come across the agents, you'd, you, you'd deal with the managers, you'd deal with, you know, labels would do showcases. So just starting to put the pieces together of what the ecology looked like, I think you, you're really at the heart and soul being in those rooms. No, they were pretty special times. It's really interesting your point around the drinking versus the amount of people in the room mm-hmm. and the genre. I always assumed things like, oh, blues audiences, you know, they drink quite a lot because the music refers to alcohol a lot, <laughs> one bourbon, one scotch, one beer, yeah, that sort of thing. 
But then the reality is a lot of blues audiences are older and they might drive to the gig and they have one beer. And so what I didn't realize as a as a booker and with programming that I thought it was a successful night because the room is full, but the publican is like, actually, we didn't sell any drinks. And I can only, I mean, look, I was doing it, I was booking up until 2003. So, you know, the difference now, even in the culture of consumption and alcohol is so different. And Mm. it's interesting because... One of the things internationally now people are talking about are drop sales. So you're seeing a percentage of shows that have sold but a certain percentage are just not going to turn up on the day and that's obviously affecting bar sales, it's affecting merch sales and it could mean in a lot of cases for the acts they're not playing to a full room, you know. Um, But that very much is the type of act you know, so different genres, anyone that's, you know, got an older audience that skews older, that's where the drop sales are happening. Any of the dance stuff where it's young kids, they're going. They're going out. No one's no one's not turning up there. So it's it's quite fascinating that the type of act has always had a an impact on the actual back end of those shows. Yeah. So you went from booking, you've had executive positions with the Australian Association of Artist Managers, Music New South Wales. But what led you to specialising in export? Did you travel a lot before you started with Sounds Australia? No, I left Macquarie Uni and went and started working in the Annandale and the Hopetown. But in doing so, had kind of come across this new association called Music New South Wales. I'd actually gone for the job initially of the first job. I didn't get it. Um, it went to a really terrific guy called Matthew Elliott who happened to book the Annandale. And so he knew I went for the Music New South Wales job because we crossed each other in the interview area and he called and said, hey, I figure you're looking. Do you want to book the Annandale? That's a long way of saying that's where I learned about this thing called a music industry association. So I very much was aware of it, was brought in as a board member pretty early on. So I feel like um, just kind of having a scope of being around an association like that that was pretty all-encompassing for a state gave you, again, a really good look at where the, the levels of need were for the industry. And I started to, in my role, at first as a board member of Music New South Wales and then as, a, as their um, creative director, export was absolutely a really key step. So I guess I started kind of looking at opportunities and strategies there, even though I wasn't personally out on the road doing it, it was recognising it was happening slowly, slowly at that time, but then kind of going, well, what do we need to as an association start to look at to help? So I was very much involved from a new, Music New South Wales and then later AIMIN, so the Australian Music Industry Network that umbrellas all of the state and territory industry associations in terms of their role in the export conversation. So I guess I sort of started there um, and then it was just sort of, you know, in many ways I feel like every single thing I'd done up until the point where I started with Sounds Australia led me to that job. So I had represented Amin at South By by that stage and I had done some stuff for Music New South Wales as well. Um, and I'd also simultaneously, when I was at the Hopetown, I was approached by the Canadian Cultural General in Sydney um, to go to Canada and speak at a conference. And I didn't even know about music conferences at this stage. I think Big Sound might have only just been in its first year. I think I went to their first year as a Hoey booker, (laughs) 
which is kind of wild now. But um, going over to Canada, talking about opportunities for Canadian acts into Australia as, as, as a programmer was my first expose there. And then the consulate then approached me and said, we want to write a touring guide of how to tour Australia for Canadian artists. So it was the reverse of what I do, but it was very much thinking, okay, if I was a Canadian act and I'm coming here, what do I need to know? So I guess a lot of that kind of, you know, deeper engagement as to what a country's looking for was almost as soon as I got into that Sounds Australia role was thinking about it in reverse. Well, what do our artists need? Um, and I really think, and probably to this day, most of the strategy and decisions our team are making is very much from a manager's perspective. You know, what if a manager was going to come and get involved either with their artist or without, what would work for them internationally? So I think I feel like that's kind of how it's all built. You've served as a board director for mm-hmm. FBI, Arts Training New South Wales. You're currently on the Board of Support Act. Most of these board roles are unpaid. They're a huge okay. amount of work. So it's an incredible service that you contribute to the music industry. What do you think you've learned from being a board director and do you recommend that other people follow Absolutely. suit? Yeah, and join boards? I mean, it's just, I, I guess I really believed in all those organisations. Like I believed, you know, FBI was slightly different because it was, my involvement was before they got the licence. It was for about five or six years campaigning for their very existence. So there was absolutely a need, still a need today, but a very different role that the board had. Um, and every every organisation, the, the board plays different levels of engagement and some a board are highly active and others just take a more passive role and you just sort of told things at the end of, you know, a meeting. Um but, yeah, I, I feel like it's allowed me to, to meet some really different people that I might not otherwise have come in touch with. I think, you know, the, the ability to kind of see the part of the world that you are operating in and working with, if there's any way that that can kind of build, you know, decision-making in terms of the board or, or the organisation you, you're helping, um, I think there's a lot of crossover, you know, you keep coming back to this ecosystem and ecology and there's no escaping it. You know, we, we are the sum of many, many, many parts and I feel like at each time I've had the privilege to be on one of these boards, you're taking everything that you've learnt from all the different people that have come to that organisation and then you, you take that with you. It's almost like a Lego, you know, you just keep adding on. Um, so I feel like that's been really important and there's always, you know, and, and more so I think people have looked at diversity across their board structures, but there's always different voices. There's always people, as I said, that I probably wouldn't have come in touch with just through my role, but have had a really incredible opportunity to share discourse and conversation and debate and strategy with at that level. You're really lucky to be involved with those opportunities as well. Like, those organisations, most of them are running on the smell of an oily rag. So it is going to take volunteer staff at all levels and to be able to have an opportunity and if you can do anything at any stage to be part of it, I, I do highly recommend it. I think I've taken a lot of learnings from the people that have been the CEOs of the boards into how I've then run Sounds Australia. So I think you, you get a chance to kind of look under the hood a little bit you know, there's certain, mm. you know, often those boards will have planning days and facilitate strategic 
you know, workshops, all of those learnings are really great and in, in, encouraging for what we do as well. It's a different part of your mm. brain, mm. right? Because you get to sit around a table where you're just looking yeah. at governance, you're just looking at strategy, as opposed to maybe your other role where you're delivering 100%. projects and you're more in that operational yeah. mode. So it's a brilliant yeah. opportunity to sort of develop your chops in that other yeah. area. Can we talk a little bit about yeah. Support Act, an organisation that you're on the board of? It's been such an incredibly tough time for artists and industry over the last few years and Support Act have played an incredible role in advocating for artists and supporting artists at that grassroots level. What do you think the next steps are for the Australian music industry in terms of supporting the healing mm. and recovery from the mental health crisis that the pandemic has resulted it's in? It's a lot. Like, it is a lot. And, you know, we're... We're so far from where we need to be. I think, you know, I think Support Act was already on the right path in terms of focusing on prevention rather than crisis. And so even well before COVID, there'd been conversations and already, you know, they'd started to move into, you know, a lot of their um, their suite of services now from, you know, mental health clinics, the, you know, all the different online you know, activities that they're running, everything got, you know, you, you put the foot to the pedal when COVID happened. They they had the ability to do it because of the government funding. But that's where the focus needs to be. And, you know, whether it's drug and alcohol conversations, whether it's around, you know, the financial management for, for artists, it's all the sessions and workshops and, you know, everything in terms of education and knowledge sharing that you can do before someone gets into crisis. So I think a lot of the focus will be really targeting those um, those, those different um, programs. And then I guess it's also looking at the counselling services that are ongoing. So there's already the, the main helpline, there's a First Nations helpline, there's the sexual harassment area that Support Act are taking a big role in terms of helping manage that project for the for, for now in terms of how that investigation is going to roll out so I think there's there's so much that an organization like support act can do and as I think really shown over the last two years what it's capable of I think it'll just be a matter of really looking at those distinct areas of need um, and we're not out of the woods we're not even close to being out of the woods you know the lag for the music industry even though you know restrictions are coming down you know capacities are increasing which is amazing and fantastic and it's about bloody time it's still going to be a very long time before you know people are earning the same level you know all of those things are going to take time so there's absolutely a need for more funding for support act the new south wales government's just on, come on board um with five million which they've never contributed before which is fantastic um but you know every cent of that money that came in from the federal government has all gone like it is it is so near and we're not talking big amounts the two thousand increment mounts going to people there's just that many people needing it so yeah i think there's a lot um you know, just even structurally, I think that the, the depth of what support act can can offer could be huge. It just needs to be done in a way that's sustainable, because you've got this situation where money's come into the organisation because of a crisis, and they've obviously got all of it out the door. But it's also allowed programs to be instigated. It's how do we keep those programs going when that same mm. level of funding isn't coming in? 
So it's sort of about just trying to how do you meet that that balance. Um, well, I think it would just be brilliant if across the commercial sector and the non-for-profit sector where possible and major funding organisations like Creative Victoria to make programs like mental yeah. first aid training, mental health programs, yeah. unconscious bias, all, all of those kind of programs to be delivered in those yeah. commercial sectors so that we're getting to people within roles and at the university tertiary yeah, level absolutely. as well. Yeah. That there's the responsibility taken from the whole industry to work on that. So it's not just all this pressure on yeah. one organization to be the champion, that it's something that is delivered cohesively throughout the ecosystem. And I, I think what it has, you know, it's definitely shown that this small organization has the ability to scale if it's got the funding to do it. So I think that's a really great proof of concept in terms of our conversations and advocacy now with various state governments. And as you said, like it's almost having, you know, the, the, the map's there, the model's there, the programs are there, you know, is the tertiary sector going to come and they then licence it? Or, you know, there's a whole how many ways can you skin a project kind of thing. So, yeah, I think it's all, you know, right now for Support Act it had been heads up, you know, get the money out the door. And I think once there's a bit of breathing room, we'll be able to kind of look at that a little, you know, a little further. Um, certainly one area that's really blossomed and grown is everything um, Cara's been doing with First Nations and First Nations, you know, accessing Support Act and understanding that it's there for them and, you know, different kind of workshops and conversations that um, yarning good sessions. Like it's been great to just see what she's been able to do in such a small amount of time but there's so much more work that could be done there as well so yeah I feel like it's got the right leadership the staff are phenomenal you know the team's all there it's just it's just working through it now so one more thing I wanted to talk to you about and that's Eurovision (laughs) so you were a judge for the Australian entrance was there something you ever imagined doing no and it's pretty funny because you know there's a lot of things that I've done over the years that I would be you know quite proud of and quite yeah that's that's something I'd love to be remembered for but I remember when um they announced the judges and I've done it twice now for Eurovision actually um everyone from school like people I'd never heard from in years came out of the woodwork and it's like you you've made it you've made it success story I'm judging a glorified Bangkok but you know sure that it it was fun it was super fun um it's I still find it pretty wild that Australia's even in there and believe me I've tried to use our inclusion of Eurovision as a way to try and get Australia included in Eurosonic because Eurosonic is one of the best showcase conference festivals that happens in um, Groningen in January and I have had endless conversations as to why can't we be involved Um, and the minute we were included in Eurovision I thought that would work for us but apparently it hasn't it's not enough but we can keep trying (laughs) keep trying Do you think Australia is truly accepted as a genuine entrant in the competition? <laughs> um, I think it depends on what uh, social media for Facebook group you want to have a look at. Um, it's getting there. I mean, look, it's all a bit of fun, right? Like I don't, I don't know how many people are taking it too seriously. And, look, we got in because of the sheer numbers of people that were watching Eurovision in Australia through SBS, like, it's fantastic entertainment. Um, 
you know, and look, I, I think you can kind of go back and forth on your idols and your, you know, your The Voice and all these songs, you know, they're not, it's not real music. It's like, you know what, anything that makes people listen to music and cherish it is all right by me. Like I think anything. Absolutely. Like I, don't, I don't have an issue that it might not be seen as cool, that it, it doesn't matter. Like all these things that have a, you know, a broad and incredibly mass reach still puts music at the forefront of a conversation and I still feel like that that's a really good thing regardless. <laughs> what I love about it is, you know, it's a song competition. So it's all about the song, yeah. you know, which is great. Funny thing did happen in one of them because you have to, it's all very serious. Like when you're nominated, you have to go through a review process. They have to do all these checks on you, which is just crazy. And then you can get approved to judge. But then you know, there's all these things in terms of, you know, you're not supposed to know anyone, you've got to declare conflict of interest. And I remember this was the first judge, I think we'd done the first heat and it was the second heat. And at the end of the song, you can, the writers, the songwriters come come up and it turned out it was actually a, the Swedish entrant had an Australian, an APRA member writer. And I'm like, oh my god! And I wouldn't, I didn't know that going in, so I didn't know to declare it. But they had to, you know, I had to tell the they've got an official notary there. We had to go through, you know. And I said, look, there's no reason that I would be waiting this any differently. But yeah, they had to go through all the official, you know, connections that had they have joined the dots. <laughs> it's pretty wild. It's serious. Oh, they business. take it very, very seriously. Yeah. So, who yeah. would be? This is my last question. But who would be your dream Australian act to perform at Eurovision? Oh, I'm not. This, this is like I'm not. This is Sophie's choice. I love them all the same, Chelsea. I love all Australian acts the same. I, I just don't think I could. I, I don't think I could do it. I, I honestly don't think I can. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass on that one. Any Australian artist is fine by me. <laughs> you're not gonna, you're not gonna get me to admit that one. I'm a huge Kylie fan, so I'd love to see Kylie at Eurovision. That would be cool. That would be very cool. But I would also feel quite joyed if Jimmy Barnes was there. <laughs> I feel like that would be peak. Australia right there. So Australia. I mean, you could do so many. I mean, look, you look at Confidence Man, you look at Client Liaison, you look at, you know, some of the, you know, that kind of, you know, I reckon they could totally do it. Um, yeah, I, I'm happy with them all, all of them. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, I'll tell you what has been interesting is when um, it changed from just putting an act forward to Australia Decides, what has been great is the interest in that event internationally has really kind of picked up and provided momentum for a number of the artists that they didn't make it to Eurovision, but even that Australia Decides audience allowed them to release to their, you know, the traction they were getting on their socials. Had they been allowed to tour was, was, you know, I know there was a record company working with one of the groups that was able to use their appearance at Australia Lives as part of their strategy internationally. And I think that's been, um, that's been really good. And all of those acts are, you know, they are on the side of pop, but they're original songwriters. They're, you know, that's been fantastic. So that exposure, huge, huge. Yeah, it's an incredible opportunity and I really hope that it means for some Australian artists that they can build 
really great mm. European audiences. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I really feel for Montaigne. You know, that was really hard that she didn't get to do it in person and, you know, needed to do the virtual year. But, it, you know, even for Kate and, yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. It is awesome in that regard. I'll give you that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great oh millie thank you so much for oh, taking the time to chat with me on the control podcast yeah good on you for getting this um underway as well i think it's really important and i think you know it's so good to see people like you doing this jen cloa has run a you know i manage my music um claire bodich has created opportunities andrea Kerwin up in the you know sunny coast like i just feel like there's you know, amazing entrepreneurial young women that are out there, you know, creating these initiatives that, yes, there's certain ways that people can find them through organisations, but when individuals are doing it for each other, it's really important. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. That was Millie Milgate in Control. For more information, please check the links in the show notes to Sounds Australia and Support Act. Please subscribe to Control on your preferred podcast platform. And if you have a moment, please rate and leave a review. It helps other people find the podcast. This episode was recorded on Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung land, and I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and all First Nations peoples. Until next time, stay kind. This episode of Control is brought to you by Melbourne Recital Centre, where live music lives. Melbourne Recital Centre inspires our community through music, presenting and hosting hundreds of concerts each year, traversing all genres of music from Baroque to post-rock. Discover more at melbournerecital.com.au.